Welcome to the Real Weird Podcast, Dispatch 4. Hello everyone, I'm recording this uh, because one of the trios that I mentioned at the end of the last Dispatch episode, yeah, I completed that one first. Uh, in case you couldn't tell from the title, I got to the uh, sort of grab bag one. Funnily enough, though, two of them were sort of uh, passing the torch movies, as it were. And both were, in a way, the fifth in their franchise. But we'll get into that. So the first, and this is the technical one because it's the reboot continuity, we got the uh, movie No Time to Die, the most recent Bond film. Uh, Daniel Craig has said this is his fifth and final performance in that role, and to my knowledge, this is the one with the longest runtime. Clocking in at just under two hours and 40 minutes if you take the opening credit scene and end credits out. Uh, so our setup, not to give too much away is that there's this man named, I'm going to butcher this name, Lucifer, Sa- Lucifer Safin, obvious villain alert, in case you couldn't guess by the name. He's the main villain here. And Bond is more or less retired, but his uh, friend in the CIA, Felix, drags him back in for one last run. Now, I'll say the introduction is a nice way of setting up the movie and wrapping up loose ends from the whole uh, timeline that we have going on here from Casino Royale to this. So the first 23 minutes or so has two major blocks in it. The first shows the most recent Bond girl, Madeline Swan, as a little girl at her house in Norway with her mother. Uh, Her father was um, Mr. White, who was the main villain in Casino Royale, uh, Craig's first uh, outing as Bond. Safin shows up and kills Swan's mother as revenge against her husband because her husband killed Safin's family. Safin tries to kill Madeline as well, but he, but she, when she's running away, she gets trapped under the ice of a nearby lake and uh, he pulls her out to safety. Now, the next block is after the events of Spectre, which was the more the last movie before this. Bond and Swan are on a sort of honeymoon in Matera, which is in southern Italy. He visits the tomb of Vesper Lind, who was his love interest in Casino Royale and died by the end of it. And somehow agents of, you know, Spectre, which is the sort of shadowy organization that shows up in a lot of the Bond stories, they know where he is and try to kill him. He gets away and he breaks off his relationship with Swan because he's convinced that she betrayed him. So... Go through all of that, get through the opening credits, we get to the main story, which takes place about five years after that event. As I said, not only is Bond retired, but we even have a new 007. But he gets pulled back into this because he feels that something is very, very wrong about what's going on. There's this uh, Russian defected scientist, and he's been abducted, and MI6 and the CIA are not talking to each other. And Spectre somehow knew how to find this specific bioweapon lab that he's been working in. So that's the setup. Um, yeah, I'm not going to get in-depth on this because it's I don't really have much to say about it. As far as performances go, Craig is on par and at least, and at, least at a few points better than he was in the previous movies. Which is already a high bar to get over, honestly. Most of the returning cast, I could say the same thing about... As far as a couple of our newer characters, Rami Malek as Safin is amazing because he's just so measured and meticulous 
that you can kind of tell he's just broken on the inside completely. He's just, it's not a great comparison, but when I watched the, when I watched the Batman it, and seeing Paul Dano as the Riddler, he kind of reminded me of that a little bit. It's not a one-to-one, but I got the same sort of vibe. You know, the guy didn't need to be a raving lunatic. He didn't need to flex his muscles. He just, you just saw him and you knew that he was dangerous, basically. Uh, during Bond's little excursion into Cuba, he meets Paloma, played by Ana de Armas, who, you know, Daniel Craig worked with worked with her before on Knives Out. And she was just, like, really, really fun, honestly, given the short amount of screen time she had. I mean, she's incredibly competent despite, you know, the first time they meet, she's incredibly, like, nervous and kind of jumps the gun, doesn't bother double-checking with, like, a code word or anything. But when things get hairy after they get compromised, she's incredibly competent as, you know, defensive driving, hand-to-hand combat, and despite all that claims that she's had, and I'm quoting her, three weeks of training. She's kind of hyper and socially awkward, and honestly, I've seen more outlandish things in, you know, the previous Bond movies and someone fighting in heels. So that whole sequence was still kind of fun. It didn't take me out of it too much. So, yeah, uh, honestly, if I had any complaints, it's just the runtime and that it didn't really improve much, but it's also not really, but it's also still on the same level as the last movies. So I really don't have much to say about it. Other as far as negatives go. I mean, the action set pieces, the pacing, the story, the way it was shot, the effects, just everything was just really, really good. So, and as I said, and I'm going to get into this a little bit more with the next one, but this is one of those passing of the torch moments, and frankly, I think it works amazing. So this one, for me, gets a 9 out of 10. Next up, we have... Okay, so I'm just going to call it Scream 5 because, you know, like Halloween reboot, like the Child's Play reboot, it's also just called Scream. There's no number put after it officially, but I'm just going to call it Scream 5. Now, I'm going to say I was skeptical, especially given that this has been like 10 years, no, actually 11 years, sorry, now that I think about it. It's been 11 years since the last installment of Scream, and this is the only movie to be directed by someone other than, you know, the late, great Wes Craven, who has sadly passed on. Uh, honestly, if I'm going to rank the Scream movies, I think this wasn't as good as the first three, but it was better than the fourth, at least as far as I'm concerned. I mean, the dialogue is... I mean, the writing and dialogue is kind of on the nose with the uh, poking fun of genre cliches, but, you know, it's Scream. That's what you're here for. The trope humor was a nice twist because there's one particular little uh, bit of misdirection that I'm not going to bring up because otherwise you'll just know it the minute you see it. But it was interesting because they presented something that I thought, no, 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 they're not going to do that. That's too predictable. That's too obvious. There's no way that's going to be it. And then it happened. (laughs) Um, Yeah, it was impressive because, like, they... They made some. They put in something that would have been so predictable as a plot twist that it circled back around to being unpredictable. So yeah, I got played. <laughs> it's. Uh, I'm not gonna give much of the plot away because it's still a. It's like the previous installments. It's a whodunit slasher, so you should actually 
you know, be concerned about spoilers here. And it is interesting seeing the progression of the series. Um, in addition to the satire for specific parts of well, movie franchise in general, but especially slasher horror. So the first was the cliches of slasher movies. The second was referencing the tropes of sequels. The third for trilogies. The fourth was remakes. And the fourth has an interesting concept called a requel. I don't know if that term originated with this movie or online, but it's a reboot that carries over legacy characters from the original. So it's not a remake and it's not really a sequel. It's a mix of the two. They mention in-universe, you know, Halloween 2018. And I, I did appreciate that they made a funny little oblique reference to Ryan Johnson and the, uh, to put it mildly, polarizing reaction that Last Jedi had. So for those that don't know, Scream has an in-universe slasher franchise called Stab, which uh, in-universe is supposed to be starting off as a fictionalized version of the Ghostface killer attacks. Um, the director is simply referred to in-universe, uh, quoting here, as the Knives Out guy. And how so many on the internet complained about his handling of Stab 8, how he, quote, how they said, you know, he crammed in social commentary to elevate it, but it just ended up, you know, ruining the movie. Yeah, as long as it's not to the detriment of the story, I do enjoy humor at the expense of, you know, toxic members of fandoms. <laughs> it's also nice that they did, as I mentioned, uh, they bring back the original cast as legacy characters, you know, Sydney, Gail, Dewey, uh, Neve, yeah, Neve Campbell, Courtney Cox, and uh, David Arquette all come back. But the thing, and I think this is why some people complain about it, is that they're not the focus characters. The focus is on a girl named Samantha, who comes back to Woodsboro because the newest iteration of the Ghostface Killer has attacked her sister Tara, uh, who's still living there, non-fatally. And following the quote-unquote rules, she tries to figure out who the killer is, and the clues go straight back to the first movie, because, as they say in the movie, that's how the requels work. It always goes back to the beginning. I mean, remember, again, um, Halloween 2018 had references to the earlier sequels, but it did. It basically said, okay, everything between uh, 78 and now, just ignore that. It didn't happen. And I know that, you know, the more cynical amongst you might groan that Scream is on its fifth installment. Um, I, I would agree that the novelty is kind of worn off a little bit, but I think this is still good enough um, in terms of, you know, acting and script characterization as well as the technical aspects. I mean, it's it's on par with... Um, it's not on par with the original, I'd say, but in most aspects it's on par, on par with at least some of the other sequels. So... It's not bad at all. Uh, yeah, just go in, ignoring any spoilers as best you can, and I'm going to give this an 8 out of 10. And finally, we have James Gunn's The Suicide Squad. Now, I'm happy to say that I really, really enjoyed this one. It's almost like, you know, I, I'm not going to drag the original Suicide Squad because, frankly, it's nothing that no one said before. And just to get this out of the way, if you're listening, yeah, I don't care if you liked it. I got some enjoyment out of it, but it's not a good movie. I have a close personal friend who said that she liked it, and she will tell you it's a crap movie in terms of movie making. But honestly, getting like virtually every complaint I had about the original, this one basically addressed it. James Gunn 
directing this was one of the best decisions the DC Extended Universe made because, like, he has the perfect sense of, like, humor and direction and writing that would work with the Suicide Squad for what it is supposed to be. It's a band of, you know, misfits. It's a little, you know, merry band of rote and of supervillains and other members of, you know, DC's rogues gallery, and they're being forced to work together for something. And they can really only rely on each other, but they also have some serious baggage. And I think James Gunn, with his, you know, sense of humor, is really good for something like that. Like I said about the original, I I didn't like it because it just felt like DC wanted to just get its own version of Guardians of the Galaxy. And I don't know if it's just because James Gunn's writing or he was sort of given a little more freedom to do what he wanted with it, but it sort of fulfilled that. So, yeah, as you might imagine, the premise is several convicted members of DC's rogues gallery. Uh, they're basically conscripted by Amanda Waller, and they're implanted with a small explosive device to ensure compliance. They are sent to a fictional island nation off South America called Corto Maltese to destroy a research facility because it's housing some sort of dangerous super weapon, or at least research to make it. In addition to the tension in the team, as you might have you'd expect from, you know, having essentially a group of villains or at least, you know, career criminals being forced to work together. They're also trying to navigate between a local rebel group and the military who has just conducted a coup. So there's also like the local politics that getting in the way. And, I mean, this one basically just had, like, a perfect blend of action and comedy. And I don't mean that it's, you know, it has funny moments and it has, you know, badass moments. I mean that there were badass moments that were funny as well. Like, there's a scene where uh, Bloodsport and Peacemaker, uh, respectively being played by Idris Elba and John Cena, they're going to rescue Rick Flagg, who's the military guy who works with Waller to oversee the actual operation. And they're just sort of, quote-unquote, sneaking their way through the camp where he's being held. And they're basically just having a kill contest where they're just passive-aggressively showing off to each other. Uh, Peacemaker just, like, fires this one bullet at this uh, sentry over his shoulder without even looking. Uh, Bloodsport just goes, non-lethal, you lose. Wait for it. And the guy just explodes. (laughs) And Bloodsport just goes, all right, fuck it, that was cool. (laughs) And on top of that... uh, the team members all have distinct personality and the story is not relying on them having sort of manipulative backstories. Um, we've got Bloodsport, as I mentioned, and he's kind of like Deadshot in a way in this movie. He's got a daughter that he's got a very strained relationship with, but he's really sort of standoffish. Uh, Peacemaker is very duty-driven and self-righteous, but he's got like this undercurrent of self-loathing. Uh, I think John Cena actually suggests actually said in an interview that Gunn basically told him to uh, play it as a sort of douchebag version of Captain America. We've got uh, Polka Dot, who is very shy and has just serious mommy issues. Uh, King Shark, who is just the sort of big dumb one who's just kind of there most of the time, although he has some fun moments too. And probably my favorite on the team in terms of personality is Ratcatcher. Um... Well, technically Ratcatcher too. Ratcatcher was her father. But yeah, she has a little device that lets her, you know, control rats. Which, uh, yeah, if any of you are going to be uncomfortable like that, 
we'll let the sight of that, even if it's fake, just like Bloodsport in the movie, I'd, uh, you know, go into this knowing you've been warned. We've also got Viola Davis and Margot Robbie coming back, reprising their roles as Amanda Waller and Harley Quinn, respectively. Uh, and we've also got, as a sort of secondary antagonist, we have Peter Capaldi as the thinker, who's part of the uh, Project Starfish, which is what they're calling the you know, super weapon research. I mean, it's not flawless, but this movie, even if it was a bit silly at points, is a good example of what a comic book movie can do when you have a good script, good actors, a director that knows what he's doing. And they're not trying like the previous one to keep it a PG-13. I mean, there's there's blood and gore in this movie. The best part, though, is that the set design, cinematography, music, effects, staging, it all contributed to make both the action and the comedy better. So yeah, this is going to be going in the 10 out of 10 club. So thanks so much for listening. I know this one was a bit shorter than uh, the ones have been typically. But I I do appreciate everyone who's been listening so far for, you know, at least letting me know that there are some people out here who are willing to put up with my voice and for a little bit when it comes to movies. Um, uh, Yeah, if you want to help support the channel, just... You know, get the word out by word of mouth. Tell your friends if they think they'd be interested. Uh, you know, just look me up on Twitter and Instagram. I've got pages for both of those. And, you know, I don't want to make it sound like I'm begging for money, but I also have a Patreon if you want to, you know, chip in a little money here and there to keep me. Um, I mean, I'm going to I'm gonna be doing this anyway. It's just that, you know, if I want to be doing this regularly and keep the quality up, then... Uh, I will need to find some extra time, and unfortunately I don't have a lot of spare cash lying around. So if you want to just uh, help support me, just look up on, just look up JT Barrett, B-A-R-R-E-T-T, on patreon.com, and just pick a plan that works for you. I've got a $1, 5 and a $10 a month tier. So, you know, I'm going to be signing off for tonight. Thanks for listening. Goodbye.